presence of God transforms lives and heals hearts. Let's learn today truths on how we can access His presence and release heaven into our daily lives. Welcome to Manifest His Presence with your host, Dr. Candace Smithyman. Hello, everybody. It's Pastor Adam, and I'm coming with the fifth uh, iteration here of this last journey of Jesus. So let's get let's get right to it. I want to I want to go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for uh, your word, and we thank you as we're digging into uh, this last journey of Yeshua and an understanding of what's going on here as he's he's journeying from Galilee to Jerusalem, recorded in the scriptures in Luke. And we thank you for all this, Father, and we're, we're just excited to get in on this again and ask for uh, guidance and understanding for us, wisdom. Uh, we ask also, Father, for anything uh, that we've done that's against your will, we ask for your forgiveness. We, we need to repent of that uh, as we want to be aligned with you. So we hope this will give us more guidance on how to align with you. And we thank you in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so uh, we're going to pick up uh, last week or last the last message was uh, right. And we were in Luke 14. And what was going on was Jesus was basically or essentially banning the Pharisees from the kingdom of God. And so then Jesus then turned to deliver an equally stiff challenge to the huge crowds, the multitude following him. And I think basically what Jesus is saying is, would they be you know, would you be good material for discipleship for the kingdom of God? I mean, that's just kind of like an overarching question he's throwing out there. And the requirements and level of sacrifice are going to be very high. And it's important to point out that once again, there is a change. There's going to be a change in the audience. Now, uh, remember that Jesus had spoken this parable of the great banquet to a dining room full of Pharisees. Remember, he was invited into this Pharisee's home, etc. And then Jesus departs from that dinner, and Scripture says he is accompanied by great crowds. That's Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now, I, die, I highly doubt that all of these people had squeezed into this Pharisee's house during dinner, so there must be... Just, I just think it's obvious there's a change in scenery. I mean, they, he went outside and he's, he's traveling. And then Jesus turns to these people and shares a similar theme about the high cost of following him. This is a lesson we have already heard from Jesus multiple times on this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. I think, uh, well, in other words, it's, this is a very important lesson we are to grasp hold of for understanding the, the kingdom entry since He's telling it over and over. I think that's a big takeaway for us. All right. So at this point, uh, Jesus, you know, he's been, this has been three to three, almost three and a half years now that he's been doing ministry. It's recorded in the Gospels. And Jesus is very well known for embarrassing the Pharisees and rulers, as well as being a voice for the poor, for the sick. But Jesus, Jesus also wanted the large crowds to understand that just because he's, you know, making fun of the Pharisees, he's being sarcastic to the, to the Pharisees, he's rebuking the big bad Pharisees, 
that does not mean that all the little people automatically have entrance to the kingdom. Remember, Jesus had challenged the masses just as sternly earlier in Luke chapter 13. Remember, he said the gate was narrow and few would enter. And therefore, because Jesus loves us, like we got to grasp, he loves us. He tells these people and he's telling you and I today that despite the fact that they gather near to him, right? Despite the fact that you may attend church faithfully and regularly, the path of truly following Jesus will involve the same division and personal sacrifice. And these people that he's talking to here in Luke and us today, we got to calculate whether we're able to bear the costs. Let's read what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 14, picking it up in verse 25 through 33. Now, great multitudes were with him and he turned to them and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it? Less after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Okay, wow. Now, First off, I want to point out something very important. We read the word hate there right away. Jesus said hate in verse 26. We got to understand that what that means is not the way we understand hate. It means love less. I think that's very important to understand. I don't think people get very confused on that. But it, but it mean, in, the, in the Greek language, that means love less. They translate that word to hate. Just read that scripture again with the word with the words love less in there instead of hate his mother. In fact, love less. Is Jesus basically saying you're supposed to love him the most and everything else comes next. Not that you hate it, but that you love it less. Right? Because the word hate there in the English does not come across well at all. It, sh- it means love less. But I think, you know, this really speaks for itself. And again, I got to tell you, I'm leery of what I've witnessed in people that are just so careless with their commitments in life, as well as just being so carefree with their follow through on just a multitude of issues. I mean, it's always just I've watched this since I was a little kid because I my parents didn't do this. They did. (laughs) They really did what they said and they wouldn't do things and say they were going to do things and not do them. They just we just didn't do things. Just. I'm not looking for any uh, condolences here, but like our family, I never went on a family vacation. We, we never had one because we had this family farm that we had dairy cows and we had to be there every day. You, the cows don't take a break. And so I'm just saying this, like I just, I was shown this from early on. So as I'm going out on my own, uh, going to college and then going into the Navy and the military and being out in the world, I just was very like, 
I'd watch so many people say they're going to do things and think nothing of it to not do what they said. Like, oh, yeah, we'll meet you there at whatever. And I'm like, if you're not going to meet us there, like, don't say it. I'm, and they'd let you down and let you down. And then it turned out to be like, well, gosh, you're not really a friend. I mean, I'm just saying. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you can have, you know, you can relate to that. Uh, all right. Um, and, and, you know, and what Jesus, Jesus did right after this is he punctuates what he just said with a parable of salt. And the overall lesson here is that the people in this crowd will, I mean, after all, they're going to be judged just like everyone else Jesus has been challenging. All of us are going to be judged. And we're all going to be held to God's standard, not our version of what the standard should be. So, we're, you know, we're all going to be examined at some point. And if they have failed to persevere, in other words, if they have lost their saltiness, like Jesus is saying in that par- this parable right after this, then they'll be cast out. And the term that he used there, cast out, is a clear reference to the coming judgment or the coming separation, which we have heard numerous times in the writings of Luke here in this final journey. Right? We heard John the Baptist warns the generation of vipers that the axe is coming and whatever it cuts down will be cast into the fire. Or Jesus had promised that many of his generation would see the patriarchs enjoying the kingdom while the, uh, they themselves would be cast out. That was in Luke 13. So despite Jesus' warnings about the costs of true discipleship, crowds you know, are continuing to, to follow him. And this crowd includes Pharisees, Sadducees, lawyers, and the scribes. Now, these may or may not have included some of the same group that Jesus had just dined with. But if it did, they immediately proved that they had learned nothing from Jesus's miracle healing and his teaching concerning the nature of the kingdom. Because as we move on, they condemned Jesus for fellowshipping and dining with sinners as we begin Luke 15. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2 says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him and and to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. I mean, (laughs) Jesus had just shown them that he would prefer healing the crippled that are in their midst, while they themselves would not taste the kingdom of God. And Jesus shows he would rather dine completely in the midst of sick people and sinners than with Pharisees and rulers. That's why I titled this one today, Jesus Hanging Out with the Riff Raff. That's what the title is of this uh, message. See, the episode of the Pharisees' home, that right, having dinner that we just looked at it in Luke 14, would have offended the Pharisees' sensibilities, but what is coming next would offend their entire principle of social and religious purity. See, and... and if, if we look through the lens of the Pharisees, in the Pharisees' mind, in other words, there is no way the Messiah would hang out among people who hardly ever went to synagogue, that were partying all the time, that didn't wash regularly, that were smoking cigarettes, that were drinking alcohol, and ignoring the jots and the tittles of pharisaical piety. And so this rebuke from the Pharisees draws a series of, Jesus answers them with a series of three parables, including one of the most famous parables that we hear about, that we talk about a lot, is the parable of the prodigal son. And again, don't, don't miss the fact that once again, 
there's a, we must notice a change of audience. Jesus has a large group following him. But this comment, as we begin chapter 15 of Luke, by this group of Pharisees and teachers of the law who just criticized Jesus is who the next three parables are directed at. Okay, they're these parables that Jesus, right? These are lessons for the pure, those who think they're the pure ones, the Pharisees, Sadducees, lawyers, right? Scribes. Each of these parables focuses on Jesus' mission to save the remnant of faithful Israel. And this third parable, the prodigal son parable, includes an explicit rebuke of the older envious son. But each of these parables carries an implicit critique of those who refuse even to reach out to the lost remnant, let alone rejoice at their return. We're going we're gonna to read these three parables briefly. So here we go. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep. It's Luke chapter 15, verses 3 through 7. So Jesus spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. All right. So th- this parable begins with a question similar to how Jesus has stumped the Pharisees already twice before, right? He says, verse four, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? This is This is very similar. It's in the same theme, like the ox and the donkey falling into the pit, falling into the well on a Sabbath. And it needs to be rescued, right? Or it needs untying to be watered since when Jesus was healing. Remember, he's healing on those two separate Sabbath occasions, and he uses that same analogy of the ox and the donkey. And again, Jesus is used, what's going on here is Jesus is using the law and particularly the law which highlights works of mercy recorded in Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, and Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. See, the fact that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers and the scribes, with their, you know, tremendous focus on obedience to the law, failed to see this, let alone obey it. Even after Jesus has been pointing it out to them, Twice before, this presents a stinging rebuke in and of itself right there that he has to keep repeating it. They continue to prove the condemnation that Jesus had pronounced earlier when he said, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. That's from Luke chapter 11, verse 42. See, the failure of the Pharisees to reach or even try to reach the true lost remnant of Israel among the fallen masses of the people, right, is just one more piece of evidence against them, right? And then Jesus continues by describing his mission as a work of mercy and joy, right? Because he says, hey, you know, when you find that sheep, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, hey, rejoice with me for I found my sheep that was lost. 
Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. I, I mean, hallelujah. I mean, the, the, I think the lesson is simple. I think it's crystal clear. It is, it's natural for, for the shepherd to seek and save his lost sheep. And with redemption comes a special joy that does not accompany the mere just possession of the sheep. So this description is like the typical Sunday school version, right? And it's absolutely correct. But today, today I want to take this a little further. In this scene right here, Jesus is really saying that the true remnant of Israel was lost. Meaning, it's out there. It's among these publicans and sinners. He's trying to get this across to the Pharisees. These people that you should be concerned with, Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, these are the publicans and the sinners that you say you won't hang out with. It's not among those of you who need no repentance. The assignment of the Messiah was to seek and save the remnant of Israel that was lost. This message appears multiple times in our Gospels, right? We see it all over. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost of Israel. Matthew chapter 18, Luke chapter 19, John chapter 3, John chapter 4, John chapter 12. I mean, it's laced throughout the Gospels. The, the phrase like righteous persons who need no repentance is referring to the Pharisees and does not mean that they actually were righteous in God's eyes and needed no repentance. It was through their own eyes that they thought they were righteous. This is the... This is the thing that we need to be careful of just as well today. Every person throughout history has to be careful of that. You know, you know th- what Jesus is saying, it's a reference to their self-assurance that they were righteous in their own esteem by their obsessive rit- ritual separation and assumed status in society. We have to be careful, people, for those of us who are very faithful and going to church and ministering and, and doing ministry, but we can't get so and love with ourselves and our service that we lose the ability to show grace and mercy and love to those who need it. And you know what Jesus is saying here, this phrase actually carries an implicit rebuke. These alleged righteous law keepers had refused to keep the laws of mercy and thereby rescue the lost sheep. They They didn't want to do that. This message of fulfilling the messianic law is even clearer due to a reference to the priestly law. When Jesus says he lays the lost sheep on his shoulders, this is interesting. I did some research here. Listen, this would certainly apply commonly to a shepherd carrying a sheep. Yet what you can find if you do a little digging, as I did in Exodus 39, there's an interesting parallel in Exodus 39. This is neat. Listen to this. They made the holy garments for Aaron, right? As the Lord had commanded Moses, Aaron, the first priest, right? Here's what it says in Exodus chapter 39, verse two. It says, he made the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and a fine woven linen. And then in Exodus 39, verses six and seven, here's what scripture says. And they set onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold. They were engraved as signets are engraved with the names of the sons of Israel. He put them on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. What I'm getting, that phrase, 
put them on the shoulders, is a phrase nearly identical to that found in what Jesus just said in that parable of the lost sheep. I mean, come on, folks, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the lawyers, the scribes, they are, they are well-versed in the law, in the Torah, in the first five books of, of the Bible. They would have recognized this phrase immediately and would have made that connection. And what exactly were set upon the shoulders of the high priest? They were onyx stones set in gold and engraved with the names of the sons of Israel. And they were set there particularly as priestly memorials of the sons of Israel. The high priest literally bore the remembrance of the true sons of Israel on his shoulders in this garment. In Jesus' setting then, whether the Pharisees fully understood it or not, the true high priest, Jesus, had come to seek and save the lost remnant of the true sons of Israel, and he put them on his shoulder just like he did in this parable with this lost sheep. He had remembered them, and he was coming to find them and bear them away on his shoulders. But the Pharisees, oh gosh, right? They had failed miserably as a priestly memorial of the sons of Israel. So in its totality then, this parable is not only an explanation of Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost remnant of Israel, but was also, once again, legal indictment against the Pharisees for failing to obey the commands of mercy and love that they know fully well is in the law. (laughs) Wow. And then, I mean, a nearly identical lesson follows in the parable of the lost coin. You know, continuing now, Jesus says in Luke 15, verses 8 through 10, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Oh, I mean, there's not really a lot from that I can add to that parable that wasn't given in the previous parable. The same lesson applies here. But the only thing to add here, and I think in this one, is there's this image of the lit lamp. The, The image of the lit lamp highlights the true seeking mission of the Messiah, as well as the same stinging indictment of the Pharisees who should have had their lamps lit. As we've mentioned numerous times already, right? Israel should have been a light to the world, but they failed. So once these two parables have been shared, we arrive at the very famous parable of the prodigal son. And so Jesus, still answering the same criticism that he had fellowshiped and dined with sinners, Jesus continues now with this parable of the lost son. And it's long. It's a longer one. Luke 15, starting with Luke, uh, with verse 11 through 32. So I'm going to read it. Then Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So the father divided them his livelihood. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, he then arose, there arose there a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. He sent him into the fields to feed swine. 
and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare and, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But the older brother was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to the son, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. So, wow. Okay. So this parable, you know, has been discussed multiple times in the past. I've done it many times. I know many of you have probably heard it multiple times, but today I want to focus on Jesus's confrontation, this thing with the Pharisees that was going on while he said these parables, right? Now, first off, notice there's theological themes here. We have, in all this, in these three parables, we have things that are lost, things that need repentance, and then we have rejoicing after redemption. I think, okay, so the things that are lost are obvious in the parable. Now, in this last parable, though, we have a much more human view of how things became lost because it's about the human who is lost. First one is a, you know, sheep and then a, a coin. In the lost son parable, things are lost through consumption and squandering of blessings. They've been squandered. This wealth has been squandered, but not just wealth in general, rather he squandered inheritance. That's a, so that's a distinctly covenantal theme there because both sons have a right to the inheritance. The prodigal, just demanded his earlier, and then he squandered it. The, the prodigal spent everything and eventually had to hire himself out as a servant. He had to find work, and he was willing to do anything, even for a Jew, this is, you know, the Hebrew connotation here. He's doing it with for a guy that has pigs. Wow. That's, that's non, you know, not a Jew wouldn't do that. So he was really desperate. I mean, his willingness to feed a pig, an unclean animal, shows that he had abandoned not only his father, but he had abandoned his faith. In other words, he was truly lost. Now, okay, so who did Jesus, Jesus come for? The lost of Israel first. 
But this, this son, as we read, he comes to an important recognition that the pigs were being fed better than he was. And, and that right there is, is like the birthplace or the beginning of repentance. In other words, when we realize the wretchedness of our true situation, right? The son then realized that his father's servants had even a, an even better life, and this changed his life. He, he would return, confess his sins, and offer to work as a servant. That's what true repentance is. It's a change of mind, a change of heart, a, a decision, a direction with the introduction of humility. All You're just immersed in humility, right? It's like you're dipped in humility, right? Come on, come on. I know, I'm, I know this is ministering to a lot of us. That outcome of, of that recognition then in this parable is that the son returned, right? And his father now sees him coming a long way off, which means... You know, we've heard this, I'm sure, in many sermons or just teachings or studying ourselves, is that the father had been watching the road. He's always looking at that road throughout the day, longing for the day that his lost son would return home. He runs and embraces his son and then begins to just shower his son with gifts. Just as with the finding of the lost sheep and the lost coin, here the father throws a party to celebrate. Now, meanwhile, on the other part of the farm... The older son gets angry over this outpouring of grace, forgiveness, and mercy. It's an exact parallel to the Pharisees who had just condemned Jesus for receiving sinners. They were, they were ticked off. They were actually the, the, the righteous Pharisees are provoked by Jesus's grace and forgiveness and mercy to others who did not deserve it based on their lifestyles. I mean, fair enough, right? None of us deserve it. None of us deserve God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness based on our lifestyles. Yet the father's message to the older son applied to him just just as much as it did to the younger son, right? The father tells him, you were with me the whole time. You could have had everything, but you never enjoy anything. You think only of works. You never show forgiveness, mercy, and grace. I mean, in short, this statement is the perfect picture of the condemnation we have noted several times now that Jesus is throwing at the Pharisees. The Pharisees ignore the weightier matters of the law, which are mercy, forgiveness, and faith, in favor of attending strictly to the minute details of the law. Now, there, there are other themes, too, that we should notice here. First, The loss and return of the prodigal is not once, but twice referred to as a death and resurrection. Verses 24 and 32. Most Bibles, that's what it says. And this language can only be understood as covenantal language, which Jesus pointedly added into the story. These were the ones of Israel lost among the mass of sinners and tax collectors and et cetera, right? I mean, I think in the same kind of theme we get in the uh, prophet Ezekiel right? That's why you could picture the return of the nation of Israel from Babylon as a resurrection of the people out of their graves. That's Ezekiel chapter 37. If you read chapter 37 there, verses 1 through 14, you get that same kind of, oh, wow, that's a, that's a thread. That's a same kind of theme, right? The, the well-known dry bones get up. That's the scriptures in Ezekiel there. We, we sing songs about that, I think, a lot. This is the theme resonating through what Jesus is saying in this parable, okay? And now now here's the second thing. 
The theme of celebration appears in each of the three parables. In the first two, it's merely stated, right? The seekers and finders call all their friends and neighbors together, come and rejoice with me that I found what was lost. In the prodigal son parable, this is expanded into an actual party and an actual disapproval of the older son and the actual father's defense of the celebration. In each case, the rejoicing was due to the fact of repentance, which reflects the resurrection of the lost, not the mere presence of the group that is still lost. In light of the previous sections of Luke in which we learned of the, you know, remember the narrow gate to entry into the kingdom? Remember Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30, right? And then the parable of the great banquet, which we read last week in, in Luke 14, which, a re, which, was a, which was a response to the Pharisee who spoke of eating bread in the kingdom of God. Well, I just think it's fitting to connect the rejoicings and the feastings here in Luke chapter 15 with the idea of the remnant entering into the blessings of the kingdom. In each case, it is a resurrection of the lost remnant that gives fitting cause for a celebration. And and as the father defends the celebration against the elder brother's complaint, it's crystal clear that the elder son needs repentance as well. Just as the original invitees to the great supper all refused to enter in, so does the elder brother refuse to enter into the party. Yet we're never told in this parable that the elder son repented and eventually joined the rejoicing. Given the previous parables and the pharisaical audience, I think the implication is that he did not. This older brother would persist in his unforgiving spirit and in rejecting the assumption or the acceptance of the lost son, he would be rejecting the father's will as well. And see, that's the thing that we can't miss. If it's God's will to forgive and have a party, just process, like, oh my gosh, we need to, re- if that's ever, we just got to go, wait a second. I got to, I got to, I got to repent of, you know, you got to just, we got to be honest about this. We're, we're, we're going against the father's will. Somebody's repenting, right? This is exactly what's going to happen to the Pharisees and the rest of Israel. They would soon find themselves completely locked out of the celebration. So, mm, wow, once again here, we have Jesus' relentless about speaking the truth that whoever you are and whatever you have done, you can come back to the Father. And regardless of what the older brother types think and say to you, right? And I, I want us, as we're bringing this to a close, I want us to think about something right now. The, the pain of losing an object is equal to the value of that lost object. Just think of anything, you know, you, you know you, something you've lost, the value, it's got value. Just think about that for a moment in your own life. Now, the pain was equal to the value of the lost object. Well, then it's only logical that the joy of finding the lost object is equal to the value of that object. The father said, my son was lost and now he's found. The pain of the father's loss has now been replaced with the joy. When a a sinner comes home to Christ, there is joy and celebration. Many times I hear from people, you know, I hear the thing that I I have no peace. Well, I'm I'm just going to remind you, if you have no peace, then I think you need to go home to the Father. I mean, I feel if you've hit rock bottom, it's time to go home to the Father. If If you're full of stress, well, then go home to the Father. 
If you feel it's, there's, you know, there's nowhere you can turn. Well, go to the father, go home. I mean, if you got this habit that's got you enslaved and you just can't break free, it's time to go home to the father. If you got any, you know, just any void, any, anything that's empty inside of you and you just can't fill it, it's time to go home to the father. Folks, here's the deal. You cannot feed a hungry spirit with earthly food. You need the spiritual food that comes only from the Father. If the, if the yoke, if the heavy yoke of sin is breaking your back, it's time to go to the Father. And it's like this. You got to get sick and tired of being sick and tired. Because <laughs> then home is where you belong. Come home to Jesus. All right. So, Hallelujah. I uh, I know there was a lot to chew on there and we got into some things here a little heavy. So God bless you. And until next time. Thank you for joining Dr. Candice for today's podcast. For more resources and weekly prophetic words direct in your email box, go to our website at www.candicesmithyman.com. Facebook at Candace Smithyman or Instagram at Candace Smithyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps the show reach more people and spread the gospel.